most of the time, God is all I trust. <laughs> you know, especially through this pandemic and through political upheaval and, and through seeing people who look like me and people of color being brutalized and traumatized over and over. Sometimes God is all I trust and nothing else is good to me. Often God is the only one who is. And, and so it's not, that, it's not that I'm so much losing faith as the sh little tiny shred of faith that I have left at the very bottom is what is clinging on to God and is what brings me through. And if it's true that a mustard seed sized faith can move mountains, then my, my little mustard seed, that's, that's enough for me today for this moment. And, and that's what I'm holding on to. You're listening to season six of Upside Down Podcast. This is Lindsay Wallace. I'm Kayla Craig. I'm Patty Taylor. And I'm Elisa Molina. Upside Down Podcast is an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. And we have created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to season six of Upside Down Podcast. I'm Patricia or Patty Taylor, and I will be your host for today's episode. Show notes can be found on Instagram at Upside Down Podcast. And to help new listeners find us and for a super simple way to show your support, please subscribe, rate, share, and review our show. If you're able to support us financially, any amount helps. And really and truly, it's our Patreon supporters who keep this, the little podcast that could, going. And we would not be here without you. So if you can, head over to patreon.com slash upside down podcast. I am joined today with my friend and co-host, Elisa Molina, and my other friend, <laughs> who we just adore. We just love so much, uh, J.S. Park. June Park, and we are so excited to talk about what is likely going to be a bit of a heavy conversation, as we talked about before we press record, but one that we are really looking forward to hashing out and seeing healing on the other side, and that is persisting through grief. So a little bit about our guest today. Welcome to the show. Yay. <laughs> Patricia, Ali, Alyssa, I, first shout out to both of you and Patricia, can I embarrass you a little bit right up front? Oh, gosh. Okay. First of all, yes, if yes. Not, I, I'm sure everybody who's listening is already following you on Instagram, but it is Patricia underscore A underscore <laughs> Taylor. Follow, smash that like button, subscribe, yes. all of it. And Patricia, right up front, I want to read something that you posted on your Instagram that moved me. Oh. I'm going to read. I hope you don't mind if I just embarrass you a little bit. This was this was so true to I think what we're going to be talking about. Mm. It just brought up all sorts of feelings for me. But second slide on one of your recent posts in an interview you did, you wrote, uh, "I found myself in a situation where the very people who knew my fears and knew my concerns were mm. the ones who ended up leaving." Mm. And I thought, I think every one of us. Has, has had a situation like that, an event like that, that happened. Where oh, these yeah. people that I trusted, whether that was the church, my workplace, people on my campus, my family, the people across from me at the dinner table, I trusted them. And they knew the deepest, hardest parts of me, mm. and they turned away. 
they went they went over the hill and ran away and i i just i read that and i thought and i thought back at all the times of course i'm thankful and grateful to the people who stayed but there were people who left and there's a lot of grief in that so i just want to i just want to thank you that you are saying these things that you are writing these things posting them because we need more and more conversations about how hard that is and how much that affects us. Absolutely. Thank you, June. That was, I'm like, okay, I'm not ready. We're only three minutes in. <laughs> Are we going to come about? Yeah. We can start off in tears. We can do that. Yeah, we can do that. This is the safe space. No, I really do appreciate that. And and that's one thing of many that I admire about you and your writing is that you you share from a real vulnerable place and allow people to enter into where you are. And anytime that someone says, and I'm sure Lisa can relate too, thank you for saying this, this thing that I felt, but I didn't know if I was alone or not, or I just need to hear someone else voice it. That's, that's really a special thing. So I think that that is the mark of both of you in, in, in your writing is that it's a generosity of spirit, um, you know, a generosity of invitation mm. uh, to, to walk along the harder parts. Mm. And I think the harder parts are, are what um, there's the most commonality in, in the human experience, you know, the joy, of course, as, yeah. as well, but, you know, to not be so lonely in, mm-hmm. in those spaces. Um, you know, it's, it's a ministry. It's a ministry to, to be vulnerable like that and help other people name their grief and name that, um, that loneliness. So, yeah. 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 I think the thing that makes us open to that possibility of being wounded by people we trust Mm -hmm. is also the thing that makes us open to compassion, to empathy, to sharing that grief. And it's tough. It's a tough balance because on one hand, it is always a risk to want to be open, you know, to want to have that, that type of, like you were saying, Alyssa, that special kind of vulnerability. We just kind of leave it all hanging out. It's always a risk and it's always built in. But at the same time, if we shut down that mothership, all the other ships shut down, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so (laughs) it's, it's, yeah, it's the thing that's open to hurt, but that's also the thing that's open to healing and, and compassion and connection. Oh, absolutely. Are you all following this man on Instagram? Oh, good God. <laughs> Go ahead and drop your, Wait, your okay. Instagram handle for, for us so that people can follow. Yes, yes. Start off with that. So we're because I'm still I'm gonna read I, I want people to know who you are. So actually let me go ahead and uh, and share a little bit about you and then I really do want you to tell people where to follow you and then we're gonna just continue to get right into this conversation. Uh, it's already been life-giving and we're five minutes in. <laughs> Uh, so really and truly, June is someone I admire and whose words and experiences move me every time. He is an ex-atheist who holds a BA in psychology from the University of South Florida and an MDiv from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a viral blogger and teaching pastor who is now an interfaith hospital chaplain at a large hospital in Tampa, Florida, where he provides grief counseling and assists with end-of-life care. Uh, he shared about this in his book, The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. June is a Korean-American son of immigrants with the sixth degree black belt, <laughs> a lovely wife, and the most adorable 
daughter ever, as my three-year-old would say, adorable. <laughs> That's how she says cute things. You're adorable. <laughs> and we are so glad that in the middle of such a busy time and busy schedule and on a day that you are home with your daughter, that you made the time to join us today. So thank you for being here. What did I miss, if anything? And tell people where they can find you. Oh, yeah, sure. By the way, can I comment real quick on the Southeastern Baptist Seminary? Yes. I, I, I joke now that I'm a recovering Baptist. Yeah. So, <laughs> you were not the only one, I'm sure. Ooh, yeah, there's, there's a lot about the SBC where I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. You know, but <laughs> yeah, every time I read that, I'm like, I'm so glad for my education, dot, 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 and. <laughs> right, right. And here's a little caveat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, P.S., lots of P.S. there. Um, but yeah, uh, they can find me on Instagram. I'm on, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. On Twitter is when, usually on Instagram, I, I spend a few days actually before I post anything, just going through it and going through it. Twitter is where. It goes from my brain to my fingers pretty fast. And sometimes that hasn't always been the best. <laughs> We've seen that in some politicians of the last few years. Uh, but yeah, but uh, yeah, people can find me there. And I do have a blog, but I know blogs are not like the thing anymore. It's yeah, on. Instagram is like the mini blog. I mean, mini I think I found that <laughs> right? my attention span, I, I told my husband the other day, I've been working on like one, a, a classic book for reading it for it's like four years now and I just told him I was like I think my attention span with the internet it just I'm trying to find a way to get more and more intentional intentional about like reading a prolonged something because yeah people have gone kind of just um but I, I actually love that you say that you that is so beautiful and it makes so much sense now like reading your post that you have that intentionality of going through it and really crafting something to put out that, that makes total sense because it's, it's always very thoughtful. Um, what you, what you put out, it is like you're, you're weighing your words. And I feel like there's a, a lot less weighing of words that, that happen, um, out there. And so the people who really, you can tell, like, this is, this is, something that I'm saying, but I've, I've carefully thought about it before I'm putting out there. It almost feels like, you know, that, that it almost feels like you're considering the receiver and not, not just the giving. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, for me, there's so many layers to it and that I do think there's something very special about spontaneity and here is Mm -hmm. my true emotional reaction. This is Mm -hmm. my initial feeling. And there's something very beautiful and sacred about that. And then there's also in me probably an editor, like a mini editor, who's just never happy with what I'm writing. So there's probably a slightly, you know, maybe quote unquote dysfunctional part of that where I just keep looking at it. I'm like, I can't post that or this isn't right or I'm not exactly getting across what's in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something about, I think you use the word crafting, that, that for me, I am very much considering every single word has power everything that we write. And I even have a rule with myself most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, I wait uh, anywhere from 12 to 24 hours before hitting reply on an email because I know that I need time to think about it. Is is this word going to be taken out of context or is there something here that's that may trigger this other person because they've had some experiences before? And so even with emails, I try not, unless it's urgent, 
I try very hard not to hit reply too quickly, but think through it. You know, if it's if this whole paragraph does it need to be a paragraph, maybe it can be one sentence. But yeah, that's always been something that I think maybe part of it's like too careful, but there's another part of it to use your word, which I love that word. I, I do want to craft it in a way that is uh, compassionate for the other person. Mm, I think you absolutely uh, strike that balance so incredibly well. So that's at JS Park 3000 on Instagram for those of you yep. who are not following him. Uh, which I'm sure by now you've already gone and pushed that blue button so that we are all on the same page together. (laughs) Uh, You know, this conversation persisting through grief, each one of us co-hosts, you know, there are four of us total and, and our listeners have shared so many stories this year of grief that goes on and on and on. I mean, seriously, between myself, Elisa and our other two co-hosts, Lindsay and Kayla in one week, it's like, Oh, a friend died or, you know, a friend's, you know, experiencing a loss or we're having a relational loss or there's grief here, or grief there, grief everywhere. And, and I look at you and I said, okay, he's in a job for, I think it's six years now, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, where you're intimately acquainted with the deep grief of others constantly. And I'm really wondering how you navigate that when you encounter the grief of others, I've heard you say in, in a previous um, interview with my friend Shay for the Shay Show, uh, yeah. that vicarious grief is what you called it. And and what what led you to this road of becoming a chaplain? Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, to define a chaplain real quickly, and this is going to sound technical, but we are a non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence in the room. And so, whereas a minister or a pastor, they may impart information and theology, which I think has a a role and a calling, a chaplain, rather than imparting information, they're just a presence. So you have a preacher and you have the presence. And so that's what a chaplain does. We sit with a person who is dealing uh, with loss. And uh, I'm on all ranges of it from the moment of crisis to when a person is about to be discharged from the hospital. And so very often I see people on the very worst day of their lives. And I think if I could put it down to two questions, when someone is suddenly hit with grief, I think they are very much asking, even if they don't ask this out loud, uh, am I allowed to feel this? And uh, what do I do with this? And that first question to me is so heartbreaking because the obvious answer is, yes, of course you're allowed to feel this. But it's almost like a question of degrees too. the sub question being like, how much, you know, how how do I feel this? Or is this okay? Am I allowed to be angry about this? You know, am I allowed to just cry uncontrollably? And so the question, am I allowed to feel this comes up so much, I think, because one uh, emotion is something that's difficult to navigate for many of us. We're told so many myths and lies about emotion, but also there's a lot of bypassing. I know that's a word that's become more and more popular now. And feel free to jump in any time to tag on anything I'm saying. But you know, with bypassing, we take what somebody is saying that is uncomfortable, and we try to make it positive or bow tied or silver line it. And so uh, I think very often the reason that happens is because when I hear your discomfort, I am uncomfortable. Therefore, I have to bow tie it for both of us. I can't just let it be uncomfortable. 
it, my way of managing your grief is to manage my anxiety about your grief. Therefore, that's why I bypass you, <laughs> if that makes sense. And that's why it's very difficult for people in grief to, to simply just feel it because they're asking that question, am I allowed to feel this? Since we live in a time and probably for a long time where grief almost seems like it's shameful, like I can't express this, like it's too much. And so hopefully as a chaplain, I am giving the permission for my patients to say, yes, you can feel this. Anything that you want to express in your grief is safe with me. That is so powerful. Ooh, and thank you, honestly, for clarifying the role of a chaplain. I think that uh, was a needed um, definition to help me with clarity as to really what your role is in this. And as you're talking about bypassing, I do think my mind goes to spiritual bypassing. And I sure. and I want to ask yeah. you, even though you know I don't know the levels of um, confidentiality that you hold with your patients. You know, I know they may you know ha- be able to check an option of you know, their faith tradition or not one at all. But how do you think the church or what role do you think the church, since as we three are believers, plays in how we process grief, whether positively or negatively, the good or the bad? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Um, how do you, what role do you think the church plays in, in what everything you just described? Wow, <laughs> that's a huge question. And I know that in general, what I've seen is, you know, both church and pop culture uh, tend to do spiritual bypassing. And I think that's because churches in general uh, treasure theological certainty um, mm. that God is alive, God is going to heal everything, that in the end, ultimately, uh, everything will be okay. And so sometimes, even when that theology is true, and as, as, a, as a Christian, I hold that to be true. I think sometimes we take the eschatological curtain and we pull it back too much. Mm. We pull it back all the way over to the moment of that person's crisis. And so we're taking the, it will be okay in the end, in the future, and moving it all the way to the present. And then even sometimes across the person's past. And uh, that is a natural instinct for all of us because, again, we all have this impulse uh, to manage our own anxiety when we see someone who's hurting. And, and it's also a way I think I, I'm trying to give the most optimistic explanation. I think people generally want to be compassionate and they look for a way to fix this person who's hurting. What, what can I do right now? I got to say something. I got to fill the silence. I have to jump in with, with something wise or helpful or or generous. And because we want this uh, compassion, we want to be compassionate, very often we accidentally inadvertently use theology as a balm when it actually becomes cold comfort and it's not helpful at all. And so I'm an optimistic person by default and sometimes uh, that gets me in trouble. Uh, But I always assume that when a church talks over somebody in grief, they're doing it maybe out of good motives. But good motives doesn't always mean a good method or good impact. And so what I've seen in churches is almost a fear of someone hurting because it's almost like, oh, you're not being a good witness if you don't handle this grief uh, in a godly way, right? What will people say about the church then and about our faith? 
uh, when really, when you look at the Christian faith all throughout the pages of Scripture, it's so open about grief. It's so open about emotional expression at every moment of crisis. You have Psalm 88 that has no happy ending. You have David crying out, how long, O Lord? You have Jesus crying out the same thing. And so all throughout Scripture, we see grief as open and raw and as bare as possible. And so uh, I think the church is getting better at it. And at the same time, I still get messages every week of, my pastor said, depression is a sin. My pastor said, uh, I have to die to myself. I can't be emotional. Things like that. And it's those myths, I think, that we're catching up, but we're still in that strange, awkward phase, the, the, the growing pains of how do we handle grief as a church. How have you, over these years, like, I, I love, I love just how beautifully you put that we're, you know, we're taking what we hold to be true that is the one day, but, and we're bringing it in at the exact moment where the, where somebody is in crisis or trying to process something that is beyond comprehension and we're bringing it all the way to this moment. Um, how do you think we as believers, as people who love Jesus and who love people, how do you think we can grow in our ability to kind of push back against that, that reaching for um, just like uh you know, sayings that, you know, God is in this and you're, you know, he's with, you know, what, what are the ways or what are the steps that we can take to, to push back on that need to fix it immediately for your sake, for my sake? Um, what can we do? What, what yeah. are the practices maybe? You know what? Uh, Oh, yeah, sorry, ahead. I just want to jump in real quick and to say I'm so glad you asked that question, Elisa, because I know, I know I've misstepped in this way before. I think we all have, even like you said, with the best intentions, but I won't go into the details, but I have a friend going through a really, really tragically hard time. And one of the hardest things that she read that someone wrote in an attempt, I'm sure, to be really positive and helpful was, you know, on a card or something. And it was like big, bold letters, trust God. And she was like, this is not helpful at all. Like, this is the last thing that I want to hear right now, you know, because it's the implication of, oh, you're not trusting God through your grief or through your hardship or what you're going through. And that's, it's like, it's just not helpful. So yes, go ahead, please help us <laughs> to grow yeah. in this area. Patricia I, Patricia, I think you read my mind because I was just going to ask each of you and as listeners are listening, I'm sure we can recount multiple things that we've heard that were not helpful at all. Mm. I think first, that's that's an important thing to name first. Like, what are some unhelpful things? Like you said, uh, that card, trust God, which which is, yeah, that's, a, that's an imperative burden on someone who's experiencing crisis, who's already on, it's like kicking them while they're down, asking them to do something uh, when they can't. They literally can't at the moment. Um, Alyssa, I'm, I'm sure you've heard things like that too, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's just those are the unhelpful things. Like anything that implies like your your faith is not working the way it's supposed to in this mm -hmm. moment, um, it is just a really really harmful thing. And when you were talking about our our grabbing to try to fix our own anxiety, uh, fix your grief because it's making me anxious. Um, I I feel like that was just me for such a long time. And I feel like just, it's just been very recent that I have got, I have 
pushed myself in it. And when I say push, it's like dragged myself to be okay with total and utter discomfort of not being able to fix it. And Mm -hmm. like that the showing up is, is just the thing because there's just really no way to fix the thing. (laughs) And so you, and because you're a fixer, firstborn overachiever, like (laughs) loves everybody. Like let's all, I'm an optimist as well, although it's getting a lot harder to be an internal optimist these days, but like, that's my, and so I love you and I don't want you to be in this grieve this grievous situation, right? I don't want you to be in pain. I want to solve this problem now. And there's no solving the problem. And so there's Mm -hmm. just a showing up in the destruction and in the grief and just sitting. Yeah. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is it is so hard because I, I I often feel like I'm not doing enough. Like, what's the thing that they need from me? My And then, oh, there's so many layers there. Like, my presence alone is not enough somehow. And and just like wow. Elisa said with, you know, well, how can I fix it? How can I be there? What, what are the right words? And there are times where they're just, right words don't exist. You know, hearing God won't give you more than you can bear, not helpful. You know, or, or hearing, yeah. um, you know, I've experienced miscarriage, which, you know, a lot of women have. And having someone say, well, you know, you never know. Something could have been wrong with the baby. Not helpful, you know, or God knows. I'm like, not helpful. And then it also, I think a lot of times too, I love what you said about it puts this imperative burden on the person to respond a certain way in the midst of their grief. But also a lot of what we say in these interactions also puts a different characterization of who God is. Like God didn't do these things to us. You know, God wasn't like, just in the example I just used, I'm going to snatch your baby back from your body. You know, like that's not God, but it's, it's, you know, these statements that are made um, that, that can have us questioning, well, if, if I know a God who loves me, why, why is God causing this harm to me at the same time? You know, or or is God just watching as the harm is occurring and the grief is occurring? I thought God was was weeping with me. You know, is God not present with me? And right. so, yeah, that's that's that, those are some of the things that that I I think of. Yeah, and Trisha, when you said about um, as if I'm not enough, you know, without words, I think that's so important that there's a there's a silence and a space where we don't have to say anything. You know, I think my favorite uh, Hebrew scripture character is uh, Elijah, you know, First Kings 19, when he sits under that broom tree. I guess all the other good trees were taken. So he sits under the <laughs> broom tree and, you know, he says that that why, the most raw thing probably written through all the scripture, which is, you know, uh, I've had enough, Lord, I'm no better than my ancestors, take my life which is just a wild thing to put in scripture that it, that was even there. And God doesn't come with a lecture or a lesson or some kind of epiphany. Instead, Elijah falls asleep, an angel comes with, you know, bread and water, hot bread and 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 soup. Wakes up uh Elijah wakes up and eats and is sustained and he falls asleep again. He naps twice. I've had moments where I take a nap, eat and go sleep again. <laughs> you know, and again, no lecture or lesson. 
And then the angel touches him. I love that there's touch there in that passage. No words. And then when Elijah gets again, uh, gets up again, I don't think there's, I, I think there's some time that passes. And then uh, the angel says, you know, uh, journey to this place. Uh, he's, I think he says rest. And then the journey will, is too much for you, implying that you're not in this alone. I'm going to look up the exact passage, make sure I'm not misquoting it. But I just love that the way that kind of God and this angel handle, not re- I don't want to say handle, but approach or lean into where Elijah is at. That's so important that God didn't just come with, well, here's the lesson that you got to learn. Here's this three-point sermon, or here's this one-liner, just trust God, right? Or God won't give you more than you can handle and that whole thing. And so I I just really, really love that he did that. He says, get up and eat. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Mm. Yeah, it's too, he, he just plainly states it is too much for you, you know, and he got up and ate and drank strengthened by that food. Then he traveled 40 days. And I think that implication of it's too much for you is it's too much for you alone. You, you won't be alone, though. That angel's going to be with him. And so, you know, Alyssa, to, to answer, by the way, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Alyssa? Alisa? It's Alisa, but it's Alisa. Yeah, oh, I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm so no, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. No, I know I know the thing with names. People people say my name in all kinds of ways, so <laughs> I'll yeah. make sure I get it right. Yeah, thank you. Um, but, you know, when when crisis is happening and it's like that idea of bringing the future into the present, this is something I don't think I've written anywhere, and I didn't realize I was doing this until hindsight, but I have now taught when I do any kind of chaplaincy training, which, which I've now recently had the honor to do. Um, I, I call it uh, time travel. So what you're doing is when a person is talking about their present moment, you stay in their present. If they start talking about the thing that brought them to the hospital, the past, you travel with them to the past. You don't bring the future into their past. And then if they start talking about hope and what they're looking forward to and when they get home from the hospital, then you move with them to the future. Wherever they're at in the timeline is where I go with them. I I travel with, I time travel with wherever they're at and I never move ahead of that person. If they get stuck, if they start repeating things over and over, I might move a little bit and that's kind of upon my discernment in the way that I want to help them. But 99% of the time I am with that person in that moment. And I think it's a lot of Christians and it's a lot of just people in general where they will kind of race ahead towards that future because dipping into the past, oh, we don't talk about the past. We should, I think, you know, or, or the present moment is so hard. Oh, no, no, let's talk about good times before. No, no, we need to stay in that present moment. Can't jump to the future too, too fast. We can't jump to glory days too fast. And so that's tough. And I found that the best way that I can be with that person without trying to fix it is wherever they're talking about, where they're talking about, when they're talking about, I'm staying with them in that moment. That is so beautiful and so powerful. I mean, honestly, I think when I walk away from this conversation, this idea of not bringing the future into the present um, as a way to love someone, I think that's just going to stick with me, you know, forever. I mean, I, we have five kids, right? So, so the way that the implications of that, even with your own children and the Mm -hmm. way they will suffer 
that they will grieve, you know, that's a tool that anybody, um, because, you know, again, with your kids, you want, you want to make it better. Like your, your job is to make this better. You know what I mean? And so I, I just love that idea of thinking of time like that in, in, in the grief process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and there are always caveats. Like I think some people do better with, if they get a glimpse of the future that helps mm-hmm. them, yeah. you know, cause hope is a vision of possibility and that's what we offer to people too. And so if we're offering hope to people that always kind of opens up, like there is a way through this, there is a road ahead and that takes moving at that person's pace and tempo. But in the moment of crisis, doing that is not always the best way. I always assume I want to assume that that person who's in crisis, that's where they're at. That's where I'm going to be. And so, again, I know that there are caveats. I know some people operate better on the faith of what will God do? What will the outcome be? And so a lot of it is also how is this person handling their own grief? How, how are they approaching it? And uh, I heard a chaplain tell me once, people who come with their, uh, people who come with questions very often carry their own answers. And so I think a person's experience, their God-gifted gifted talents and abilities and calling, all of that, very often people already have the skill set for the healing that they need. They already have all the tools and skills, and they just need either a reminder or kind of a, hey, let's organize the way forward. Yeah. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. so I, that that's when I'm with that person, and I and I kind of almost remind them of their autonomy of their ability. Like you, you, you can do this. It doesn't seem like it, but allow me to be a a reflection of a reminder that you can, and God is with you in it. Oh, that's so good. And now I want to ask you how you do that for yourself. Um, (laughs) Because I remember a post that you wrote in early September and The typewriter image reads, I'm so very tired, God. I need the strength to rest. I need the rest to fight. I need a glimpse, just a glimpse of light. And your caption began with, I'm losing hope at the hospital. I'm literally walking through dead bodies. And it was gut-wrenching to read. But we, I was not the one walking through the hospital, walking through dead bodies. And as empathetic as I felt, as compassionate as I felt, I'm not the one in your shoes who's doing that and then going back the next day and then doing that and then going back the next day and then seeing that and then going back the next day. And then, you know, this was specifically related to COVID, this particular post and so much of what you've witnessed. So there's a whole other layer of, of how people are perceiving what COVID actually is or isn't. And in some ways, I think, tragically not valuing the lives that have been lost to COVID. So how, when you are feeling that sense of hopelessness, how do you even hold your own grief and continue to show up for others? Hmm. Yeah. Patricia, first, thanks for reading that and sharing that. Um, That was definitely a very difficult time when the Delta variant was ripping through Florida. And, you know, the loss that I saw, I'm not sure I'll ever get over it, you know, and 
when uh, the question is asked, you know, uh, maybe my self-care or how do I deal with the grief that I'm experiencing? There's a part of it that doesn't want to let go because there's, there's something in it that I carry that equips me for the work that I'm going to keep doing. But uh, to more practically answer your question, I am so glad. A shout out to all the chaplains and healthcare workers that I work with. You know, our chaplain department, we have sort of a policy where if we have a hard visit, we are allowed to uh, process with another chaplain and just pause in between visits. I, I had a really bad problem in the first couple years, and sometimes still do, of chaplaincy where there was that instinct in me or maybe ingrained cultural thing in me where I have to see as many patients as I can today. I can't rest. You know, there are people who are hurting. I got to go see them. How many patients can I see in this eight-hour shift? I'm going to see 20 patients. And I didn't rest. And, uh, you know, doing that, I think two years into the work, I, I collapsed in the hospital. I was just overworking myself. And that's a whole other story for another day. But whew, yeah, I'm so glad for the other chaplains and that we're able to pause and rest and just kind of consult with a chaplain and say, hey, I, you know, I just had a really hard visit. I just had this really hard patient. And uh, having chaplains to be able to process that with is the absolute best because <laughs> chaplains know how to chaplain and they know how to be a presence and they know that simple answers, there's no such thing. And so I'm glad, so glad to be able to sit with people. And I think all the other elements of self-care are just as important, like what, how we physically take care, taking care of ourselves, mental health, therapy, all of that. I've been in therapy now uh, for over a year again, consistently. And I just started uh, EMDR. Uh, I have my next appointment tomorrow. Uh, that, and that's, you know, for those who don't know, that's for trauma and PTSD and things like that. And so um, a, a lot of that is kind of our, there's like our own self-care, but then there's like the community. And it's the community for me that has been so, so helpful. And I realize how lucky I am that, that I get chaplains as my community. And that at any point I can look left or right and sit there in camaraderie with them and in companionship with them. And they know how to be. Um, and I would say, you know, when people read posts like that, like, are you losing hope? Sometimes I'll hear Christians say like, oh, you're not trusting God or, you know, just look to God or don't look at that. And, and I just want to tell them like, <laughs> most of the time God is all I trust, <laughs> you know, especially through this pandemic and through political upheaval and, and through seeing people who look like me and people of color being brutalized and traumatized over and over. Sometimes God is all I trust. And nothing else is good to me. Often God is the only one who is. And and so it's not that it's not that I'm so much losing faith as the sh little tiny shred of faith that I have left at the very bottom is what is clinging on to God and is what brings me through. And if it's true that a mustard seed sized faith can move mountains, then my, my little mustard seed, that's that's enough for me today for this moment. And, and that's what I'm holding on to. I love the the last part of the that's enough for me today. Yeah. You know, I I think there's so much within me and maybe Elisa you can relate to this too and you know it's just like the fixer that wants to be like it's how can it be enough today if it doesn't solve the problem? 
Yeah. You know, it like it has to solve the whole problem. So I just, just, just thinking about that. Sorry, go ahead, Elisa. No, I just, you know, I think that what has been really beautiful to see, um, and you guys are, are really good at this in your sharing of grief being something that you're allowed to process no matter what it is that you're grieving. I think this has also been like an adult treasure that I've found when it comes to grief. I've had a lot of relationships that have changed or ended. And I, you know, the, the idea is that you should just, you know, that's not a death. So you should just kind of get over whatever that is. You know what I mean? And I think that there, not only along with kind of this opening up of this idea that, that therapy is good and that medication can often be good. And there's all these other, and, and, and speaking your grief out loud and not trying to just shoulder everything on your own, like all of this, in addition to that becoming something that is just, I have found a lot more prevalent in, in being okay. I, I have also been blessed by this idea that you're allowed to grieve, grieve things that, uh, that in the past may have seemed silly to grieve. You know, you're allowed to grieve the changing of relationships. Um, you're allowed to grieve seasons that have changed. Um, you know, you're allowed to grieve if, if your church, uh, isn't showing up the way that you, you know, you thought that they should, these are things that you're allowed to name and to be sad about and to process, um, because they live deeply within you. So, Um, Can you speak to any of that? Yeah. You know, I I have this. So my friend and I were talking about this. He has this theory that, you know, when dominant nations took over and oppressed, quote unquote, smaller nations. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this because I know I (laughs) I took a sudden leap out of what you were saying. But I promise I'm going to loop back to what you're saying. Um, but yeah, he has this theory that when dominant nations oppressed smaller nations, that the, the smaller nations didn't have time to grieve because they were being oppressed and the dominant nations didn't have time to grieve because they were the ones doing the oppressing. And if you look at generations upon generations of this, somehow historically dominant nations continue to carry on that culture of, we can't grieve because capitalism, because we have to achieve, because we're running things. So no grief here. And then oppressed nations rebelled against that, which is why you have uh, spirituals, uh, which is why you have uh, indigenous Native American people remembering their ancestors. We have ancestral prayers in Eastern and Asian culture. You always had oppressed nations that it's like they try the, the dominant nations, the oppressors tried to hold down these oppressed nations grief, but it didn't happen. They always found a way to remember. They always found a way uh, to grieve. And so I think, I'm so sorry, Elisa, because I know you had a question and I'm starting to lose it a little bit. No, the, the I mean, that is, that I, yeah. it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like it because that makes absolute perfect sense. Like, yeah, yeah. like this, this idea that, that you almost get to fight for your Right. right to grieve, you know, oh, like yeah. whatever it is, you know? And yeah. so first of all, my mind is just blown by your friend. Like I, I'm going to need yeah. you to go back and be like, 
Yes. That yeah. is – I've never made that connection, and that is just – oh, my gosh. That is – Right. That is straight fire. But but yes, <laughs> I just feel like this is this is true. This is true. Yeah. Like this ability to say, you know what? No, this hurts. Yeah. And either through groanings or through journaling, whatever it is, yeah. I'm going to name that this hurts. And that is right. not weakness. And that is not um, bad. It's not wrong. Um, and like you said, you know, you can go through all the Psalms. In the Catholic Mass, the daily readings um, or the Sunday Mass, it is there is always the reading of Psalms, always. And nine out of ten times or eight out of ten times, there is some, especially during Lent, there is some massive grief in yeah. those Psalms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were saying the word naming and then allowing allowing that grief to come up. And I think that's that's like the first step and that's key. And I'm still often surprised when people don't feel the permission for it, but I understand historically why that is. And then I see cultures like my own that have, whether purposefully or not, we rebel against it. Uh, grief can't be suppressed for long. It can't be held down for long. It always comes up in certain ways. Um, you may have heard of the cultural concept. It's a Korean concept called Han, which is like a combination of sorrow and resentment and anger. And it's because of the grief of colonialism of our country and it being split and all the damage that was done to, to Korea. And so if you look across history, you see people wanting to name it, you know, not just waiting for permission, but it keeps erupting this, this grief. And we see that if we don't name it, people act out in certain ways, not knowing why, but it's the voice of grief trying to find a venue and room. And, and and so naming it is important, and I think that has been a lost maybe art or gift or permission. And whoever's listening to this, you may have been told your whole life, you know, crying is for babies, or, or be strong, don't cry, or, you know, don't feel that, just keep moving forward, let go, turn the page. And for me, grief is less about letting go and more about letting in. It's about letting it all in. And how do we do that? And Elisa, you said it perfectly. That first step is naming it. And then we validate it. We validate it. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. Letting it in. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to pause real quick. I know we're getting towards the end, Patty. I know you probably have one or two more questions on that beautiful outline that you worked on. But I need, I need, <laughs> say, I need you to say more and letting it, say more. Letting yes, it letting in. it in. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm like, okay, because that's us. Please. Yeah. Uh, so... I think in westernized culture, and I know I pick on westernized culture a lot, shout out to westernized culture, there's a lot I've learned from it, but in, within grief, uh, because westernized culture has done quite a bit of the oppression, if we look historically, and uh, quite a bit of the achieving and accomplishments and all of that, and intellectualizing and academizing, I, I know I'm picking on it a lot, but when it came to grief, there was somehow a jettisoning process, a severing. We bury bodies six feet under. Uh, we have funerals and then we move on and let go and keep going with life. Uh, all the person's belongings, put that in a garage sale, sell it. It's antiques. We got to let those things, we wrap them up and we let them go. That's a way of letting them go. All of it is about 
how much can we sever? How much can we cut off? How much can we leave behind? And that is a very westernized funeral process. Everything, uh, the body even, is ravaged with formaldehyde and preservatives and things like that. We put them in a casket, in a box. We literally don't have to see them again. Um, all those things, I'm not saying that they're inherently bad things, but they are a reflective of this unwillingness to look at death and also to say that the only way to grieve is to completely let go. And that is a fear of mortality. That is an unwillingness to uh, hold on, I, I, I guess, an unwillingness to feel sad and to say, I won't let this hang over me. But when we look at other world cultures, for example, there's a particular people group. And I know I'm going to name it wrong, but there is a particular people group that every summer they exhume their ancestor from the grave mummify them, sit them up, and drink tea with them in the morning. They don't have a fear of bodies. And I know for, for our westernized minds, that sounds crazy, yeah. right? But that is their tradition. That's what they do. Uh, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Uh, that is an important heritage uh, for Mexico. Um, if you look anywhere else in the world, the westernized culture is the only one where death engagement is considered morbid. It's for horror movies. It's all haunted and ghosts and curses and creepy stuff. We think of death as cursed. Uh, there's a whole morbid culture surrounding that. Uh, but for me, I'm coming back to and rediscovering that there is a healthy death engagement that there is a healthy way to not let everything go, but let it all in. How do I hold on to their memory that it persists within me and becomes a greater part of my own life, that I can keep the good and rework the bad, that their legacy was important. Um, memory, the memory of the dead, of those that we knew before, there is so much about, oh, I didn't think about them today, or I, when I thought about them, I wasn't sad. It's okay if we think about them and we're sad. Grief, it's okay if that's a cloud that persists the rest of our lives. And as we, as we hold on to them, we become fuller and bigger and larger. It's, it's Hebrews 12, that cloud of witnesses cheering us on. So when I look upon my ancestors, they make me bitter, bigger, they make me better, they make me a fuller person. And for someone to tell me, just forget about your friend who died to one of my best friends died two years ago, you know, just, just forget and move on and let go. I'm never letting him go. I still talk to him. And does that mean I, I'm, I'm somehow grieving in an unhealthy way? I don't think so. Uh, does that mean I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm somehow dysfunctional because I, I talk to my dead ancestors? There's a lot of that in our Western culture where we're afraid of memory, where we think somehow if I remember, it's going to make me sad. And so for anyone listening, for each of us, I am getting used to the idea. I'm becoming comfortable with um, those who came before us. There is so much we can learn from them. There's so much. The grief process is a way of honoring those who came before us of holding all of it the the sadness the the love the ways they disappointed us even which makes us more human and more full and so i will carry the books of their lives with me forever and for anyone to tell me to let go i'm not letting that go no way oh my lord <sighs> 
See, now you know why we were so yes, please, honored everyone. to have June on <laughs> this. I'm like, read okay, all the things today, two. please. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So if you can give us just two more minutes, because you yeah, have absolutely. really been so thoughtful in thinking of those who may be listening. And I, I kind of chuckled earlier when you're like, I'm an optimist and I have that in my, in my notes um, because I, this is an important question that if, if we can end here, because what, like, I'm just processing everything that you've said, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm thinking of the person who's thinking about it and saying, yeah, I hear you. That sounds good. But I just can't do that. I'm swallowed by grief right now in this moment. I'm surrounded by harsh realities. I want to get to that point. I want to believe that this is true. I want to let things in and not lose myself in the process. Or I'm around people who are saying I can't, you know, whatever the circumstance is. So what would you say, and you have already said so much, but for the one who feels like their grief is swallowing them whole and they can't see that there is hope, what would you say to them in this moment? Oh, yeah. For one, if I could, if I could be with you and sit with you and not say anything, that is the main thing I would do, is just to be there with you uh, as a physical presence. And I, I, I want to tell you that there's nothing wrong with you, and that it's a natural thing that you're feeling. And this is the hard part. This is the hard part. It's overwhelming. You know, this is the part of being human in that, unfortunately, love has such a high cost. You know, when you love someone when they're alive and when you love someone when they're dead, there's, there's such a cost to it. And it's a beautiful thing to love someone. And the beauty of that love leads to a grief that is unbearable. It's unthinkable. It's unbelievable. And I'm with you on that. And I wish I could say that it's going to get easier tomorrow or even next week or next month. But at times, like the waves of an ocean, it's going to wash over you and seem to overwhelm. And I know that this will sound extremely, extremely cliche. Um, I read this from Martha Hickman's uh, Healing After Loss. But she said, eventually the memory of a person becomes a warm blanket that can tuck you in. And it's not what we would have wanted, uh, but grief be- can become a companion. And that's not to rush anyone. Uh, that's going to come at your own tempo, your own pace. And that grief may persist in sadness for a lifetime. Uh, but if that person is unbearably in agony, if you are in anguish because of someone you lost, uh, it's understandable and it you know, you may be fine in the next five minutes, and then the five minutes after that, feel that anguish again. And I'm just here to tell you, I know it doesn't feel okay right now, and I wish I could tell you it gets better, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be real hard. And all I can say is uh, I'm with you, and you're not alone on that. And uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. <sighs> but just want you to know I am with you. I'm not but. I want you to know, and, and I'm with you. Hmm. I'm with you. Maybe the most powerful thing you can, you can say to someone in those moments. Thank you so much for that. That ministry of presence, just being, being with people. 
is so important. Oh my goodness. This is like, I'm, I'm. Yeah. I'm just, just here. Like, are we allowed to cry on your podcast? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I'm about to be there first. See the way you started out. And I'm like, Oh, um, I mean, this is a way to start a Monday. If there yeah, this was. is, yeah. I, I really feel like you have ministered to us, you know, and, and I've heard you say that when it comes to your role as a chaplain, that like this, this is, this is what you're meant to do. And I'm like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And you prove yes. it time and time again. And, and just thank you so much. I really want to make sure again, for all of our listeners, and of course we'll put all this in the show notes and all the ways for you to buy um, June's book and follow him on social um, and be praying for him too, as he continues in this holy work. Um, but make sure that you're following him at JS Park 3000 on Instagram. And I really thank you for your real, honest, powerful, genuine, Careful. impactful words that you shared that I know are going to be held onto tight for anyone who who listens so thank you for that and and very reluctantly because i'm like we could keep going um i'm gonna turn it over to you lisa i too want to say thank you this has been such a enormous blessing of of my heart and um and yeah so grateful um you can learn more about us at upside down podcast by going to upside down podcast.com or following upside down podcast on instagram uh we have a listeners group over on facebook to process these um episodes as always we appreciate seeing you share our podcast episodes this one is going to be one that i already have a litany of people that i'm going to share this with so you can also share with your online communities uh we appreciate you and we'll see you next time